0: two of uh, Break the Cycle. I'm very glad that you guys chose to stick around. I could see your comments. I really appreciate you. Um, uh, we have a great guest today. Jacob Hornberger. Jacob is an author, a two-time presidential hopeful. He is the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation, and he's quite literally one of the most fiery advocates for the ideals of liberty that I have ever had the blessing to meet in person. In fact, I got to spend uh, last year some time around Jacob uh, you know, traveling to conventions because he was running for president. I was running for chair, and it was a really great time. But, uh, anyways, let's see if we make sure he has audio. How you doing, Mr. Hornberger?
1: Hey, doing great. Nice to be here, Josh. Difficulties and all, it's oh, an honor. Oh, Thank man. you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I really
0: apologize about that. I'm glad you were a soldier and stuck it out so that we could hang out and have have a talk. Uh, hopefully, everybody out there can hear Jacob. If if you can't, please let us know in the chat. I'll try to fix it. Uh, but I'm a boomer. And uh, I might I might boomer it up. So, uh, Mr. Horberger, let's talk about your journey from Texas attorney to liberty advocate and founder of the Future of Freedom Foundation. How did you come to the ideas of liberty?
1: All right. Well, I, I grew up in Laredo, Texas, which is right on the border, the U.S.-Mexico border. And I grew up on a farm on the Rio Grande, and I, I was a Democrat. My dad was active in Democratic Party politics. I actually campaigned for for John Kennedy in the fifth grade when he was running in the 60 election. Uh, my dad took me to the Johnson Ranch and where I met LBJ himself. He asked me I was what I was doing to help him out, and I was stuffing envelopes. And uh, then when I returned to practice law in Laredo in partnership with my dad, he was a lawyer, uh, I got involved in some Democratic Party campaigns, and all my candidates lost, and I was really disillusioned. And here's where I saw for my first experience with the— uh, the double-crossing and the backstabbing and the double-dealing and the nasty attacks in politics. So I said, ah, who needs this? And so I walked away from it and walked into the Laredo Public Library looking for something to read, and I came across four little different colored books called Essays on Liberty. And they had been published by the Foundation for Economic Education some 20 years before. They changed the course of my life. I, I started studying everything I could about libertarianism, Austrian economics. I went to fee seminars, which is what that foundation is called. And then I ultimately moved to Dallas. My, my father passed away and started a law practice there. And But I was doing libertarianism. I mean, this is where my heart was, doing conferences and seminars there in Dallas, speaker programs as a hobby. And Finally, Fee offered me a job in 1987 uh, as their program director, and that was the turning point in my life. I decided to go for it and stay there two years and then decided I'm going to start my own foundation, and so that's when I started the Future of Freedom Foundation in 1989. and I've been doing this for 30 years, and it's been a real labor of love. I'm one of those blessed people in life that just loves what I do in life.
0: Well, that's a, it's an important thing, too. You want to you love what you do in life, right, Jacob?
1: <laughs> it's the essence of life, really. I mean, if you can do what you, your hobby for a living, I mean, it just makes life all much more rewarding and valuable and fun.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So you're the author of several books, and a lot of people know your views on economics and liberty and all that great stuff. But some may not know that you wrote a book about the autopsy of John F. Kennedy. What compelled you to write that book?
1: Well, I actually have written two books on the autopsy. One's called The, Auto- the, the Kennedy Autopsy, and the second one, which was written well, maybe a little less than a year ago, was The Kennedy Autopsy two. And I I'd, I'd studied a lot about the Kennedy assassination, and at the Future of Freedom Foundation, we have done a lot of work on the national security state, which came into existence after World War II. Uh, we have always stood at FFF for limited government, and a national security state is the exact opposite of limited government. And so I was familiar with the regime change operations of the CIA and the Pentagon, Iran in 53, Guatemala 54, uh, La in the Congo in 61, uh, Cuba, Chile, all these regime change operations. But then I discovered the regime change operation that took place in Dallas in November. And I did a lot of study and just steeped myself in that literature. But the watershed book that that really opened my eyes to what had happened and which was really a critical key in understanding the assassination was a five-volume book by a man named Douglas Horn, who served on the staff of the Assassination Records Review Board. Now, that was the board in the 1990s that was called into existence to enforce the JFK Records Act, which mandated the release the Pentagon, the CIA, and other federal agencies of their long secret records relating to the Kennedy assassination. That had come into existence because of the movie JFK by Oliver Stone, public pressure forced Congress to act. Well, Horn's book is, is just a watershed. You cannot get through Horn's five volumes without concluding at the end, this is a fraudulent autopsy. And so I decided to write a a long review, a synopsis of this book for people that really don't want to go through a five-volume book that's like coffee table-sized. And so we we did did a long series of essays on it, and then Horn somehow discovered it, and we started becoming friends. So he did a series of essays for us called JFK's War with the National Security Establishment, Why Kennedy was Assassinated. So... We decided ebooks were starting to get really popular, so we decided to just put those out as ebooks and just on a lark. And all of a sudden the guy that formatted them for us called me about two month, two months after we put them on sale on Amazon. He says, Have you seen what your books are doing? I said, No, he says they are soaring in sales. And it was un, it was incredible. I mean, I looked at the charts and we only sold them for a dollar. But we were selling like 70, 80 copies a day. And it, it was just, it was the most amazing thing. We, we got on the Amazon bestseller list. And well, it's our, the, the Kennedy Autopsy is our all time bestseller. Uh, so that's that's why I ended up publishing those two books on the autopsy. The autopsy really is a critical key in understanding the who and why of the Kennedy assassination.
0: Sure. Absolutely. How's, how's the newest book doing?
1: Uh, not as well as the initial book, but doing well. Uh, people are starting to discover. It. We we don't do a lot of advertising and promotion, but people are starting to discover it, and I'm getting really nice comments at uh, on Amazon on it. So it's uh, yeah, it's doing fine. And uh, we we're, we're, we're this year because of COVID, we decided that we were cutting back our conference activity, of course, and we decided to convert all our eBooks into print books. So. We're working on all of them now to put them into print books, including those two.
0: Nice, nice. So there's some, some serious controversy that was surrounding your 2020 POTUS run. Some of that came from the, the, the your was it 1990 or 2000? Was it the 2000 run?
1: Yes, With, 2000.
0: Yeah, and I know that there's some people out there that really want the air cleared about that stuff. But um, it seems like a lot of people came out swinging in the very beginning about you going after Harry Brown in his campaign. And uh, I, I actually personally reached out to to Perry Willis, who was, I believe the campaign manager at the time uh, for the Brown campaign to try and get some more clarity on the whole event. And Perry actually told me directly that he still believed you to be the best candidate and that there was zero ill will whatsoever. But the, uh, the loser brigade, as we like to call them, decided to hold that against you. Not a lot of people know exactly what was true, what was not true. There were so many things flying around. Can you give us some some backstory on that issue with the Harry Brown campaign? Did you hate Harry Brown? Did you <laughs> were you friends with Harry Brown? Did you uh, did you call the police on Harry Brown? I mean, these are these are the questions that people want answered. You know,
1: that, that's fine. Uh, let me let me go back just for a second, though, on the on the Kennedy matter. We're running a really nice conference at the Future of Freedom Foundation right now. Oh. It started last Wednesday. What we what we're doing is instead of a a one-day conference where you got a bunch of speakers packed up. Uh, we decided to do an online conference spread out over several weeks, but it's developing thematically that where people can understand the context of the assassination. It's oriented toward people that don't know a lot about the assassination. They haven't steeped themselves in all the literature, but who have a real burning interest to learn more about it. And so we had our first talk Wednesday. That, that recording is now online. It, it's good to hear that one because it's going to proceed thematically. And then every Wednesday from now through April 21st, there will be a new presentation, and we we have live Q&A. So you can go register at our website at FFF.org. You've, it's free, free admission, but you, you've got to register. Okay, the, the, the 2000 race. Well, look, when, when, after that race, I – ran for u.s senate here in virginia and uh that was as messy as uh, with the libertarian party the state party is as the, as the brown campaign had be, been so at that point i decided for the second time in my life i'm walking away from this i mean this is just not worth it there's just so much negative energy in politics and and the nice thing about the educational arena the ideological arena is it's mostly positive i mean there's fights that take place but but not, not to the extent in politics. So what, what happened in, in 2000 was that I had received some information from friends of mine, in the, especially in the Pennsylvania LP, that there were some oddities going on in the in the Brown campaign with respect to expenditures. Uh, there were FPC reports. And so I went and looked it up, and sure enough, there was some strange things there. And so... All I did, this was right at the advent of the internet. And so what I did was I, I had a p- little personal website which is very rudimentary. And I all I did was disclose. I said, these are the entities on Brown's website. These are the expenditures. I didn't, I didn't make any attacks. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't say, you know, there's there's bad stuff taking place here. Nothing. I just said, here's the list of the entities, and this, these are the expenditures. Well, Brown comes back and levels the nastiest attack I've ever seen in my life. I mean that I was trying to destroy the party that I was a, a really bad person. He was trying he said let's let's stop donating to his foundation. He was trying to put the foundation out of business and it's like wow. I mean this was like a little overdriven here. And now Brown had been a friend Brown and I had been friends. Uh, prior to this time, that when uh, I lived in Laredo, I actually met Harry Brown. He he and I had corresponded. I was going to start an investment newsletter with a friend of mine in Laredo. And I asked Brown if he would be willing to uh, give us some advice. And he said, yeah, come to Austin. We met personally. I was a subscriber to Harry Brown's uh, special reports. I bought all his books. Uh, I mean, he was a hero of mine. He still is a hero of mine. He influenced me deeply on Austrian economics when I first discovered libertarianism. All the hard money people did. Doug Casey, uh, you know, Howard Ruff, all these guys. So, and then uh, Brown contacted me on our – I think it was our fifth year anniversary and said, can I speak at your anniversary conference? And we were already full, and I said, I'll squeeze you in. And so he was a luncheon speaker. So when he comes out with this attack and like I say it was a no-hole barred attack I figured something's not right about this the, the, you know there, there's something going on here and but Brown had such a powerful name in the movement you know I was a kind of an obscure guy and so people didn't know what was going on but what if Harry Brown said it it had to be true and so everybody coalesced to Brown's side and I'm sitting there saying you know like how do you respond to an attack like this? Well, there was a guy in, in um, Pennsylvania named John Farmolero that he kept digging and digging because it was suspicious. The, the, the attack was overdriven. And um, he kept digging and digging. And in the meantime, I got – I decided, well, you know, not, the only way I can fight back against this is to go to the convention and run against Brown, who was running for re-election. And I knew I couldn't win. I mean, you don't just pop up at a convention and win. But I figured this is the only way that I can hold my head up because I had no real way to counterattack or defend myself. You know, the the Internet was so rudimentary and stuff. And there wasn't any email at that time. So I just showed up at the convention and announced my candidacy. And, of course, he you know smashed me. Uh, I went up to him to congratulate him and uh, held out my hand. and, And he just walked away. He just shunned me. And so Familaro kept digging, though, and sure enough, he found the smoking gun, that there was some real bad stuff going on. And what Familaro did was kind of interesting. He didn't say anything. He just posted the smoking gun on the internet. No comment, no anything. And it started spreading like virally. I mean, and people, I forget what it was, but it was something so incriminating That it caused the executive director to issue a long confession to the Libertarian National Committee. He showed up there and he says, yeah, we've been doing this. And what they were doing was they were making under the table payments um, to the executive director uh, in violation of the LNC rules. And they had warned him to not do this. He had done it back in 96. He had done it again in 2000. But they were doing it secretly. And they were were laundering the money through those mysterious uh, entities. And so here's this, and, and and when the whole thing broke, Brown had told everybody, including him, everybody keep your mouth shut, don't talk, everybody just keep your mouth shut. So if Famulero had not found that document, um, it would they would have succeeded. So it turned out that every all the attacks against me were totally unwarranted. Uh, but you know the the lie. Sometimes the truth doesn't catch up to the lie. Sure, sure.
0: Well, and, it and that's what happened here. I mean, yeah, and a lot of people said that you know you reached out to the FEC, you called the FEC. It, it kind of reminded me of the same thing that they were talking, you know, during during your last campaign uh, in New York, where they were saying that you had contacted the FEC, FEC to become the only candidate on uh, for the for the primary there or whatever. And, and and we knew that wasn't true. I knew your I knew your manager Jake. Uh, I you know I'm friends with him. I knew that didn't actually happen. So. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's the Libertarian Party. It's that that small uh, pond mentality, big fish mentality in the small pond where, you know, we're all fighting for the the little tiny piece of land that we own. So Uh, but I get it. And, and, uh, you know, I'm glad that you. Well,
1: well, let me let me address that that part about the FEC. You see, I mean, this is politics Uh, politics. Josh, I knew this. I knew this was going to happen when I decided to, to come back into politics and make this race. I really wanted this nomination. I thought I could have really done a good job for the, for the Libertarian Party. But I knew this attack was going to come. I mean, this is politics. I've been in politics. I know attacks like this come. So I wrote a book uh, that was sort of an intellectual autobiography and a political autobiography. And um, I included an entire chapter on the Brown fight just so that people could go to that book and see it. And then I posted that chapter, in case somebody didn't want to pay the two or three bucks for the book, that I posted that chapter on my campaign website. So I knew this. Now, the, the, the FEC, I mean, it was politics. I mean, I don't blame them. I mean, they need to attack me on something. They're not going to attack me on ideology. Oh. They're not going to show it. So, so they attacked me on the Brown. It, it, of course, duh. But on the FEC thing, what had happened was that Brown, by this time, the, the fight between me and Brown was pretty blown up. And I, one of the things I deeply regret in it was that when I started posting exchanges with him, I got just as nasty as he did. And I, I really regret that. I learned a valuable lesson is if you're going to fight with somebody, keep it on a high plane. But Brown was making this big fuss. I forget all the details about he was testing some rule of the FEC. And he said, I want the FEC to know about this. I'm doing this. I'm going to have a public test of this. And day after day, he was saying this. Let the FEC, I'm, I want you to know I'm doing this. And he was doing it publicly. Well, I was curious too, and I forget what the test was. But so I wrote a, an email or a letter to the FEC saying, hey, what is your opinion on this that, that the Brown campaign is doing? What, what actually is, is this the right or the wrong thing or whatever? Well, of course, they never responded. But Brown then shifted gears. <laughs> it was a stupid move on my part because then he started telling people that I had turned him in and that he he was effectively denying that he had this big publicity campaign where he wanted the FEC to find it out and he wanted to test it. He wanted to, to see it, whether it was valid or not. So essentially, he was lying again. He He was telling people— That I had turned him in and that he essentially had had no wish to do this. Well, you know, I stepped right into it uh, because, again, he has the wide audience. I don't have the wide audience, especially in the Libertarian Party. So everybody had this rumor. Oh, he turned uh, Brown into the FEC. I did no such thing. And every time somebody found the real story, they go, oh, so Brown wasn't telling the truth. Uh, And and that's the case. I mean, that's the sad part of this is that if Brown at the very beginning had said, okay, we've been doing this stuff. We've been laundering this money to the executive director. We shouldn't have done it. We want to straighten it out. There would have never been a fight with Harry Brown, but instead he thought he was going to get away with it and he didn't get away with it. And unfortunately uh, he he couldn't make amends. I mean, I don't have any grudge against Harry Brown. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I buried the thing a long time ago, but obviously a lot, some people didn't. There was but definitely no, some good. people
0: that still held that grudge for a long time. Well, it,
1: well yeah, but it's good that, that, Harry, that Perry Willis didn't. Uh, Perry Willis was on the other side of the fight. Uh, the Virginia Party hierarchy was aligned with the Brown campaign. I had to pick a state to run for U.S. Senate where Brown's people were in control. Yeah, Jim,
0: Jim Lark's not a fan. I can tell you that, Jacob.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, duh. Uh, so, But I knew all this going into it, you know, and I said, well, that's just politics, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any grudges at all. I, I found it interesting that people really did hold grudges. I mean, uh, one guy, I won't mention any names, but I was at a state convention uh, and I hadn't seen him in 20 years or so. Um, and I, I walked up to him and I said, Hey, I'm Jacob Hornberger. How are you doing? And he goes, he doesn't even look at me. He says, I know who you are. And I said, oh, well, you know, it's great to see you. And he just wheeled around in his chair and made it very clear that he was not going to talk to me after 20 years. That wasn't Dr. Jim Lark, was it? (laughs) No, it wasn't Lark. No, Lark was pretty cordial. I walked up to Lark. I could tell at the Virginia convention. And I, I said, hey, Jim, good to see you. And and he was cordial, but I could tell that it wasn't like, hey, Jake, I'm good to see you again, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah, he, <laughs> he, I,
0: he's, he came up with some story about a pin or something. I don't know. He was he was upset. He was definitely upset. But that actually leads me to my next question. Uh, you know, when you, you ran in 2020, it was a, a, an actually built campaign. You actually traveled around. You actually really fought for it. But uh, there was a lot of people, including some people in your camp, who kind of took issue with your messaging tactics against Justin Amash in your eight part series and some of your jabs at Joe at the end. And especially in that last uh, debate, that last internet debate before the uh, right before the election. Um, What was the reason for that? And would you do anything differently if you were, if you were going to run again?
1: Okay. Well, here's what, what was going on when I announced at the convention in South Carolina on November 1st or thereabouts, uh, I knew that, there was this force in the party that are the reformers. I call them the reform-oriented libertarians. You can call them conservative libertarians, republican-oriented libertarians. Uh, they're, the, they're the ones that, that really don't hew to the principled line. They think that they, you've got to water down the message to get into office and so forth. And I, I knew that force was in there. I, it, the forces in the, in the movement, they predominate. The reformers predominate in the libertarian movement and the libertarian party. And what it was, was that partly the Ron Paul campaign did this. A lot of conservatives and Republicans came into the movement and the party, but unfortunately, they brought their baggage with them, too. Um, and now, I'm I'm a firm believer in libertarianism. I, I, I believe that libertarianism is the only viable moral philosophy, and that it stands in direct contradiction to both conservatism and progressivism, or liberalism, whatever term you want to use. So, I knew this force was out there, but it wasn't materializing. Uh, that Bill Weld, who was the, the darling of the reform crowd, they were grooming him. They, It, it was clear they were doing this uh, even before you know before I entered the race. I was watching the situation. They were interviewing him and adulating him and you know, writing articles about him because he was going to be their nominee in, in their eyes. Uh, well, then Weld disses them and, and uh goes back to the to the Republican Party but I knew this force was out there but we were winning primary straw votes into January February into March and then but I always knew Amash was going to come in this race I knew it from the very I knew it before he knew it that when I announced and, and, and people can verify that at every convention I would say, We need to fight as libertarians. We're not conservatives. We're not Republicans. We're not hybrids. We are libertarians. We need to fight as libertarians. We need to have a bold campaign that relies totally on libertarian principles. None of this hybrid conservative claptrap. Well, then Amash finally comes in, sort of, not really, because what he does is he announces an exploratory committee. Now, this is in, in April or so. Uh, like three weeks before the convention. And, I mean, the m- national media hoopla was unbelievable. on Washington Post, New York Times, USA Today, I mean, he was he was the nominee in their eyes. That How's he going to do? How's he going to affect Trump? Is he going to take votes away from Trump? Everybody was automatically assuming him to be the nominee. At the same time, Reason Magazine, which seemed to have known that he was going to Appear was ready for it. I don't. Shock, I don't know if shocking. they knew yeah, in advance. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know if they knew in advance. But I mean, all this big play, Amash, Amash, Amash was their new weld. You see, because here was a Republican-oriented candidate, uh, a Republican public uh, official, a congressman, and then the big media hoopla. So Jake and I, Jake Porter, my campaign manager, and I were sitting there saying, "We can't beat this. If we stand here." And do nothing, we're going to lose by default. Now, to me, in politics, you got to fight for what you want. You can't just sing kumbaya and say we're a happy little party here. And so, Amash, I believed, was, was not going to enter the debates. And, and, he, and he, had, he had delayed entering the race till April or May or so. And when all the debates were practically over, now I'd been to about 25 presidential debates. Well, this is a nice little cush thing. He's got all this national publicity. He's got Reason Magazine all hyped up. And there was Cato people supporting him. And all of a sudden, um, he doesn't have to debate because it's an exploratory committee he does. So we, Jake and I said, well, if, if we just sit here, we're going to do nothing. And we didn't think Joe would do anything or any of the other candidates would do anything. So this left us. We had no choice. If we, if we had any chance of beating Dimash, we had to go after him. And so that was the, the purpose of the video series is to every day we were going to take one of his positions on his support of the CIA. He has a website where he's directing people to the CIA, which I hold is the most evil agency in U.S. history. He, he favored the stimulus plan. He favors all these Republican-type positions. He also so doesn't we, support
0: a pardon for Ross Ulbricht, which was really hard for me to, to hear. So.
1: <laughs> that doesn't surprise me a bit. I don't know where he stands on Assange, Assange and Snowden. But— we figured we have to taunt him into getting into these debates. Uh, that was our only chance, and it worked. That he finally came out and said, "Okay, I'll be at the Kentucky LP debate." And we decided to come out swinging. I mean, I, I I consider politics coming out swinging against your opponent, but but on not on a personal level because I like Amash. I mean, never met him, but he seems like a nice guy. But on his on his positions, he's a hybrid. He's not a libertarian, libertarian. He's a conservative libertarian. And, and he will admit that. I mean, in many of the interviews, he describes himself as a conservative. Uh, well, I, I stand against conservatives. I, I think it's a bankrupt economic philosophy, political philosophy, moral philosophy. So we said, let's go after him directly. Well, this offends the, the kumbaya section of the party that said, oh, no, Jacob, you should have embraced him. You should have welcomed him. Well, okay, you can welcome a person, but take him to task on his positions. To me, that's what politics is: is that you have to go after people so that people on their positions, so that people can say, "Okay, who do we want to be our candidate?" Well, at some point, Amash just drops out. I mean, which, which we found shocking that uh, he dissed reason again, just like Weld had. And at that point, all of a sudden, we we felt everybody's the, the, the reform crowd this force that had finally materialized was shifting to Joe well Joe had been coming out in the in the straw polls in the primaries low oh, yeah. so we never paid the attention to her We we just it never occurred to us that she had a chance and so we thought well let's just be nice to her we were going after people that were that we thought really had a chance like Amash or uh, what's his name judge gray and Mark well, Mark Whitney You're missing Mark, well, Mark Whitney
0: came Whitney <laughs> came after me. I never went after him. That's one of my favorite actually just to cut you off for a second that's one of my very favorite memories uh, during the campaign it, it, last year was in, at the Florida State Convention. <laughs> And and he said something to you. I bet you've never even litigated this kind of case. You're like tw- twice actually. And let me tell. Let me talk about the times I litigated these cases. And it was his face just dropped. It was it was so funny. It was so funny. But Mark Whitney was quite the character, and he did not like you, Jacob.
1: No, he didn't. Uh, <laughs> but you know, this is politics. It's like okay, he's attacking me. <laughs> I mean, like duh. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I said okay. A mush, having a mosh here is great. Having Weld here, yeah. But 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 see, my beef with the party, Josh, is that it's turned into a Republican-Libertarian mush because of this. These Republicans come in and they use it as a revolving door for the Libertarian party. There's no Libertarian brand anymore. Nobody knows what Libertarianism stands for because it's a mush. Uh, you know, health savings accounts, school vouchers, regulatory reform. I mean, it, it, but it applies not just to the party, but to the movement too. This is where the hybrids and the conservatives have done a lot of damage to our brand. And what I wanted to run was a pure, bold libertarian campaign. So when I went after Joe, we felt the force moving toward her, this pragmatist force. And it was, but it was too late. We had to show where we differentiated ourselves from her. Uh, Again, we went after her, uh, I went after her on issues, her support for social security, trying to save social security, Uh, even with her language of opt out. She was saying, oh, we're going to sell assets and we're going to help out the elderly. And that to me is not the way to run a race. I I think you got to run a race going after the welfare state directly or her her position on the national security state. I I never heard her call for the abolition of it. All I heard her say was, I'm going to bring home the troops and make this a Fortress America sort of thing. I believe it was uh,
0: Sweden, armed and neutral. Yeah, yeah, Switzerland. Or Switzerland, yeah, yeah, armed and neutral. That was her big thing uh, through her entire campaign.
1: Right, which to me was a garrison state. You bring all the troops home, you don't discharge them. You keep them right there, this huge military force inside America. Well, I say go after these people directly. You know, uh, the Kennedy assassination, I would have said, man, there was that regime change. I mean, how can you not criticize in a campaign what the national security establishment did to a sitting president of the United States? I mean, I think in order to do well, and I said this throughout the thing, I said, if you want to do well, you got to roll the dice. You got to run a bold campaign that if you play it safe, the best you're going to do is a safe result, one or three percent. And if you're going to get eight to 10 percent, which is what I would consider a success, you got to be bold. You got to roll the dice and fight as a libertarian. And uh, so I lost the race. I mean, uh, but that was okay. I mean, that that was the will of the the electorate. We fought a good fight, and I and I Jake and I felt solid. We, we were ready to go forward and win with that nomination. We would have run a totally different campaign than Joe did, but we don't. We didn't compromise any of our principles, and that's what mattered to me. Is that hey. We, we fought, we fought hard, and we lost fair and square. People said, no, we don't want that kind of campaign, Jacob, a hard-hitting campaign. Uh, I mean, the way I went after Amash or Joe, that's the way I would have gone after Trump and Biden. Uh, I would have gone after him swinging. But a lot of LP members, the reform crowd, the pragmatists said, no, we don't want that kind of campaign. We want a standard LP campaign. Okay. Um, and the irony is that they said Jacob's going to Gray used to say this, that Jake's going to take us back to 1%. Well,
0: that's what we got. they went back to 1%. 1.5%. Yeah, one, one that's what we got. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a large portion of that, the pragmatists, uh, not just not just the caucus, but the pragmatists in the Libertarian Party that kind of hold this, let's kind of waver on liberty here and there to try and get it here and there. We actually, that's who we call the loser brigade. So, um, but but yeah, I, I, you know I, I was on the phone with, during the election for president. You know, I was running for chair, so I wasn't super outward and open about, like, who I was talking to and who I was supporting for president. But I was on the phone with about 100 people during that election to go, can you vote for Jacob Hornberger? Can you vote for Jacob Hornberger? Come on. You got to do it, you know. And I thought it would have been great had it been you and Spike Cohen. That That would have been amazing, you know, or – so uh, yeah it was it was sad that you lost, but speaking of LP presidential runs, there seems to be a lot of people who are entirely let down by the messaging over the last year, uh, not just from the presidential campaign but also the, the party in general um, about this silver platter of tyranny that we 've been had, handed from federal and state governments around the country during the COVID shutdowns and lockdowns and mass mandates. What are your thoughts? on the mandatory mass mandates and, and the shutdowns. And, and how would you have handled that at running if you had got the nomination and ran, you know, around the country?
1: Well, I, I kept saying at every state convention, I said, you know, our job here in the Libertarian party is to, to achieve a free society. Uh, that's our objective. And, and, you know, the, the, the pragmatist crowd says, no, 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 we're a political party. Objective is, is to get into public office. No, that, that has never been the objective in the Libertarian Party. The, the, the objective has been the achievement of a free society, and, and getting into office is the means to do that. Uh, so I kept saying, what I want to do is raise people's vision to a higher level, to what freedom really is. That's what I want this presidential campaign to be. I don't want to get in a fight over how should the, how should the president handle the pandemic— or how should a governor handle the pandemic? Should there be mandatory masks or mandatory shutdowns and this sort of thing? Well, what I wanted to do is raise people's vision to a higher level. And, and that higher level is separate government out of health care entirely. I wanted to ex- express that ph- philosophical ideal to people, saying government has no role in healthcare care at all, which means necessarily getting rid of Medicare and Medicaid. Well, this just frightened the heck out of the pragmatists and, and the reform-oriented people. Oh, my gosh, Jacob's going to scare people. He's going to scare people. Well, this is what libertarianism is. I mean, I, I didn't get scared when I discovered it. If if I liked it, why can't other people like it? But in order to like it, Josh, you got to hear it. So I, I wasn't going to get boiled down. to I mean, obviously, I, I don't like the mandatory anything, but that's not enough for us to fight at that level because— as long as government's in charge of health care, you're not living in a free society. Uh, the example I often use is slavery. That, you know, as a libertarian in 1850, would you have spent your time trying to reform slavery, trying to make it better? Uh, okay, we're going to have a law with fewer lashings, and we're going to have better health care for slaves and better food. Uh, well, the slaves would have appreciated that. School,
0: school just vouchers.
1: School like, vouchers. School vouchers, yeah. School <laughs> vouchers? yeah. Well— no, there's some of us who would say no. Forget that stuff. Freedom means no slavery at all, and that's what I would have done with healthcare with people. I would have said freedom means a separation of healthcare in the state, getting rid of Medicare, Medicaid, Centers for Disease Control. This is what I. This is the way I would have fought. had I, had I been the nominee, sure. Well,
0: and a lot of people don't understand how just messed up uh, the state has made healthcare in general. You know, they, they think that the state can save health care, but they're the ones who have ruined health care to the point that it is today anyways. Um, so it's it's
1: they, they destroyed the finest health care system in history. Yeah. Before Medicare and Medicaid, the poor people were being handled fine. Uh, I grew up in the poorest city in the United States, Laredo, in the 50s. Doctors were handling uh, medical cases for free. I mean, doctor's offices were filled in Laredo every day. And most of them couldn't pay. And doctors knew that. They never turned away anybody. They were still the second wealthiest people in town from the people that were paying. Uh, you're right. and But you see, in order to make that case, you, you have to have the, the, the boldness to go in and say we need to get rid of Medicare and Medicaid rather than I, if I were president, I wouldn't have lockdowns. I would have this and I wouldn't have th- this. No, no, no. The president shouldn't have any role in health care at all. That's what freedom is. I mean, you mentioned school vouchers. Here, here's an example of where I think this party has gone way astray. I saw one person's website. Again, no names will be mentioned. But it was like so stunning. And the candidate said, I'm a pragmatist. She, she was a candidate for a, for a state house. I'm a pragmatist. I'm a libertarian. I favor public schooling. And and I want everyone to know I favor public schooling. It's like, wow. How, how, do, you, how do you get a message out like that? Uh, and, and Because now, what is libertarianism? Oh, everybody that heard her talking, in their minds, libertarianism is supporting public schooling. Not just vouchers, but public schooling. And I thought, wow. I mean, this is the mush this party has become. There's no pushback. You know, like... You welcome a mosh in. Yeah, great. I like the guy on a personal level. But at least say, hey, can you remove that section from your website about the CIA? Or at least say this is your personal opinion instead of the position of libertarians. Uh, But no, there was nothing like that. So yeah, I think – to. For this party and this movement, and I said this before, that this is a fight for the heart and soul of the party and the movement. Is it going to be a libertarian, a pro-liberty movement, or is it going to be settling for reform of slavery or our modern-day serfdom?
0: Nice, nice. So you actually are a supporter of the takeover by the Mises Caucus then?
1: (laughs) Well, no, I don't— I, I don't get involved
0: in that. Kind okay. Of stuff fair, at fair. All. That's, that's the, that's the new thing. There's, you know, the big, bad, scary Mises caucus. Who were all your supporters? I mean, that, that was who supported you. Oh, they were fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't
1: know much about all this takeover controversy. Well, there's I haven't, there's, I haven't kept up with know,
0: it. They've been growing to try and take the soul back of, you know, of the party. It's a it's a battle for the, the soul of the yeah. libertarian party. True libertarians like yourself who, who, who are fiery and want to attack the root cause of the tyranny. Um, you know, they want to see a a party with the name libertarian in it. They want, they want that party to represent the ideals of Liberty. And, you know, so the Mises caucus has kind of taken this role where they're, they're going to, to try and bring the party closer back to that. And I think that's why they kind of rallied and coalesced around you because you, you weren't, you weren't apologetic at all about who you were and and what you were doing. And, and so, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. And, and uh, I I hope that, I hope that you felt the support, even though you didn't get the, uh, the nomination. Definitely.
1: Oh, are you kidding? They were fantastic. I mean, they were just fantastic. Every time I went to a convention, three or four people would come up to me and say, we're Mises Caucus. What do you need? We can do this. We can do that. We'll help you put flyers in the chairs. I mean, I like it made me feel really good. Uh, they guided me around. They were awesome. Absolutely awesome. I, I tell you, this whole, I mean, okay, I lost the nomination. Big deal. You know, it it was a positive, transformative event. I, I, I forget how many conventions I went to, but I went to tons of them, oh, yeah. and I did, I think, like 25 presidential debates. I was eating it up. Co- COVID was the nightmare because, I, you know, you could—you know, Josh, when we'd see each other at conventions, you could feel the energy in the room. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was excitement. And for a speaker, you can feed off that. The COVID thing hits, and everything shuts down, and everything changed. You, you couldn't feel the energy of people on on Zoom. Um, yeah I think that was right but, after
0: the uh, right after the Illinois state convention where I actually yeah. I hosted the debate in Illinois if you remember that and I was the keynote speaker at the Illinois state convention. I do. Yeah that was that was a lot of fun and, and it was right after that convention they stopped all the other conventions and it and then I I was sitting on the LNC at the time so I was a part of that battle to still have that in person uh national convention and it was it got so ugly Jacob I mean it was Constantly, there was 100 people on the Zoom uh, meetings trying to to give public comment and tell us, you know, we're going to all die if you let us have a national convention. And then, you know, what happens? 600 of us or so show up to the national convention and not a single person gets COVID. And that was in Orlando, one of the hotspots during the height of the COVID infections. Not a single one of us got COVID, so
1: wow oh i didn't know that that's fascinating well you know that weekend after illinois i came to virginia and did the virginia one and then on the sunday i did the maryland one and very few people were wearing masks i remember uh oh i forget his name the executive director um for yeah, the for, Fishman was there with a mask on and everybody was thinking god how strange is that and he finally i think felt the pressure and took it off but uh I real I wonder why we didn't get sick. I don't remember anybody getting sick at those conventions. It was a miracle. It
0: was just a big miracle, you know. I've, I I had flown. Let's see. So I was flying. Here's the, the the crazy thing. I was flying in and out of San Francisco Airport every weekend. Okay. Wow. Five thousand people a day travel between China and San Francisco. Five thousand people a day. The first known death from COVID was in the county that the airport's in. In I believe it was January, the first weekend of January, or the second weekend of January. Okay. And I was flying in and out of there through March. And I had gotten really, really sick back in January too, like really, really sick. And, but, you know, I just was like, well, it's the flu or whatever. I'm going to take the weekend off. But, um, I, you know, I, I, just, I was flying in and out. I never got COVID from what I know. And, uh, all these people that were traveling around the country for conventions weren't getting COVID. You didn't get COVID. I don't know. It seemed pretty crazy to me, but you know, maybe we just got lucky. But the the national convention was a big deal. There was uh, hundreds hundreds and hundreds of people in one room, all in the same hotel for the whole weekend. Or no, it was like five days, and and nobody got COVID. Not a single. And were
1: people wearing masks? Oh no,
0: no. And we were having pool. They were having pool parties and and that's drinking amazing. at the bar and walking out. they were going to the bars and restaurants and you know it was Orlando Florida
1: That's amazing you know, Florida. that is truly amazing
0: Yeah Florida never really like shut down shut down you know and and I and I'm living in Iowa now that's actually moved here right after that Illinois state convention I moved here from California uh, for my girlfriend we just had a baby at New Year's Eve and um and you know, they never really closed down here either and we're we're all fine. So <laughs> I don't know.
1: Well I, I Jay told me you'd moved to Iowa and I said, Man, the guy really went off the deep end, didn't he?
0: <laughs> you? Uh, hey, look, I actually I actually left California uh my flight flew out of there ten minutes before they instituted the twenty four hour lockdown in California and I moved to Iowa where they have never locked us down at all. So
1: Wow. It's cold. Yeah, but you yeah, I was going to say you're freezing your tail off. Actually, that's the only hey, problem.
0: It was 55 degrees today, and that's the warmest it's been in like a month. We've been at zero <laughs> or under zero for weeks, so I'm very, very happy. I could just wear a hoodie again. I don't have to have the jacket with the fur hood and all that stuff. It's really nice.
1: Hey, so I actually, had, uh, uh, congratulations um, also on the baby oh, and the marriage you. and stuff.
0: Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. We got six in the house now. It's a, it's a lot, right? I keep.
1: What she would, She's had children from a previous marriage, or so,
0: so she had two uh, prior. And then, um, my 16 year old daughter, we ended up getting custody of my 16 year old daughter and she has two, um, siblings that aren't ours biologically, but I was able to get custody of them too, to keep them all from being separated and going to foster care and stuff. So we had five and then we had the baby, uh, at New Year's Eve. So
1: that's so nice, man. That's a nice story. Good for you.
0: It's a lot, but we got a bigger house now, so we're doing okay. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah well it sounds like you've done really well by these kids that you took in and stuff that's awesome
0: yeah they're, they're good kids they're good kids we, we hope that uh hope that maybe we can turn some things around for them and um, they're back at school for the first time in, in over three years but you know public school unfortunately but uh you know we're doing the best we can
1: <laughs> Well the fact that you send that message that they were important enough to be brought into your home that's a lot right there for a kid yeah
0: I sure hope so. Hey, so we had a, a, a viewer question. They wanted to know what your thoughts on Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency movement were.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I'm not really an expert in that area. You know, as as, um, as a libertarian and an Austrian economist, what I favor is is uh, well, the second best system I would favor would be a, a gold standard uh, like they had in the first hundred and some odd years of American history. But I, but my ideal really is what Friedrich Hayek called the denationalization of money, the separation of money in the state, the same way I was talking about separating healthcare in the state, uh, where the market decides the medium of exchange. So if people want to go to Bitcoin, that's great. If people want to go to gold coins, that's great. If you want to go to American Express banknotes, that's great. So, you know, I'm always reluctant to make a value judgment on one particular method. What I want is a free market system where people are free to make these choices for themselves. An analogy is education. You know, I like homeschooling, but it's not for everybody. So why not have a free market educational system where people can choose the educational vehicle that best suits each of their children? Well, same thing in the monetary sphere. Now, Having said that, I would say Bitcoin and cryptocurrency have, I think, done a wonderful uh, service for people in terms of being able to hide their financial affairs from the government. Uh, that I think that's one of the big disadvantages of, of a federally centrally controlled system like the Federal Reserve is that they can monitor so much of your financial affairs. And you can't live in a free society when the government's monitoring your financial affairs. You, you're entitled to privacy, not just personal privacy, but financial privacy. And I think the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and stuff, has restored a lot of that privacy, which is why the government hates it so much. Sure.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's decentralized currency, circumventing the federal government. I mean, it's a pretty libertarian cause, even if you don't understand it completely.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and I think they're still trying to figure out how they can control it. It seems to me I don't know that much about it, but it seems to be very difficult for government to control that that Bitcoin system.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we're getting we're getting close to the end here. But what what do you think should be the strategy of the Libertarian Party going forward? Do you think we should adapt to this woke SJW culture in order to try and court that growing movement, or obviously I know you think we should stay staunchly in our ideals? But is there anywhere that you think that we should uh, give and take at all for, for this growing movement of, of wokeness? Um, or, or, or should we just stay staunch all the time, no matter what, e- even if it pisses off the people who want to line us up against the wall? <laughs>
1: uh, I say stay staunch. That You see, what, what I think it's a real sad thing that you've got campaigns on the national level that, that are raising money saying, help me get my message out. Help me get my message out. Well, this party has been in existence 50 years or more, and uh, I guess about less than 50 years. And more why many. do you have to get – why do you have to get your – well, 70, 71? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure, yeah, but thereabouts. That – why do you have to get a message out? Your party has been here 50 years. Everybody should know where the Libertarian Party stands. But people don't because it's mush. It's got this Republican, conservative, hybrid message to it. I, I'll give you an example. At one state convention, a guy gets up and says, OK, we all know that that libertarianism stands for getting government out of health care entirely. But people aren't going to buy that. So we need to do health savings accounts. And I, so he gives this whole lecture on health savings accounts. And I'm sitting there just shaking my head that I, I think that libertarians need to, to – decide what do you want for yourself? What do you want for your party? What do you want for your movement? Do you want this reform of slavery, of serfdom? Is that what you want to devote your life to? Or do you want freedom? Because if you want freedom, you've got to make the case of what are the infringements on freedom, and you've got to make the case for dismantling them, not reforming them, because then you're back to reforming slavery again. And I think that's where the libertarian movement and the party has faltered in the last 20, 25 years, is that they decided to go the reform route, call it libertarianism, call it advancing freedom when it's nothing of the sort, that freedom necessarily entails dismantling, repealing. That's a tough sell. When you run for office, it's a tough sell to argue why public schooling should be abolished, Uh, separating school and state, that type of thing on the national level, separating money in the state. But if you want to be free and you want a successful party, I think you've got to stick with your principles all the way through, come hell or high water. And when you've got candidates that are violating those principles, you need a mechanism to say, hey, look, make people aware that that's your position. That's not the position of our party. I mean, a good example is like the Catholic Church, and I just use them as an example. You know, they had all the sex scandals with the priests and stuff. But what would happen if some priest said, well, I'm going to start, I'm losing members, I'm going to start compromising my principles. I'm going to say Jesus was a good man, but he really wasn't God. Well, the Catholic Church wouldn't put up with that. They, They would immediately say, you shut that message down immediately. That is not our church's position. We don't care how many people we're losing as members. I think that's the position the party has to take. These are our core principles. You candidates out there, if you're going to take contrary positions, you make it clear that that is not the position of the party. That's what we need to do for success. That's what we need to do to get a free society, Josh. We need to get people thinking about what freedom is.
0: I agree fully. Absolutely. And I ran on a a much similar message for chairman of the, the organization in 2018 and 2020. I think, you know, we should not, we should be unapologetically libertarian. That's what, you know, there's half of the population in this country didn't vote for a presidential candidate in in 2016 or 2020, because they're just done with the two old parties and their non-principles. So we need to be that party that actually sticks to our principles and shows them that there's a viable opportunity there. And and I, I agree completely with you.
1: Well, thank you. You know, gosh, with both of us having lost two races like this, Maybe we should start a club. <laughs> the, the, are we the? I think we might be the real losers, Jacob. I don't know.
0: <laughs> At least we don't compromise our principles. You know.
1: That's true. That's the thing. You know. <laughs> so, uh,
0: what's next for Jacob Hornberger? Will, will there be any more campaigns in your future?
1: Well, you know, I I I, I really loved that race, um, but you know, I'm not also not one to do something futile that it, that the party and the movement are dominated by the reform element. There's just no question, the pragmatist element, the conservative oriented libertarians, the Republican libertarian, whatever label you want to put on people that want these reform things. Or, you know, another thing that some of the reform crowd, they, they think it's a big thing when a libertarian oriented conservative is in charge of a regulatory commission or something, you know. Uh, but uh, so, I, yeah, I, I have no interest in just doing something that futile. Uh, but if, if the party were to move in a in a, Positive, purist, libertarian, pro-freedom direction. Who knows? You know, I, I, I'm not saying never is never, uh, but as, as of right now, I'm putting all my efforts into the uh, into the ideological arena at FFF. Like we've got this great conference going on right now. I'm doing a lot of writing on what we can do to get the movement to be doing these things. To me, the 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 party is sort of the mirror image of the movement. And so by concentrating on the movement, I'm hoping that that will be reflected in the party. I'm considering a personal website that focuses on the party and saying, hey, this is what we need to do. I mean, like, for example, take the platform. The platform when I joined the party was really hardcore. I mean, that was why I joined, it, that I wasn't going to join the party when I first heard about it. I was asked to, to join the platform committee by a guy named Bill Evers. And I said, no. It's, it's, this is a political party. You guys are watering down your message to get votes. That doesn't interest me. And he says, have you seen the platform? And I said, I don't need to. It's a watered down piece of junk. And so he sends it to me. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this is a pure libertarian manifesto. And I, I joined. I joined the platform committee. I served three ter- terms. But somewhere along the line, Josh, somebody gutted that platform.
0: Oh, yeah, and, big time. It was, uh, what, from what I understand, it was actually 2006. They call it the, uh, the Portland Massacre. They had, a, they had a, a convention in Portland, and a bunch of people didn't show up. And so uh, just this one caucus showed up that was very, very, very conservative, hard, right-leaning, whatever you want to call it. And, and they gutted the platform. I mean, completely gutted it. And, they, and they've been trying to change it back for years and years and years. But then there's also other stuff in the platform that you know some people in the party don't agree with, like the abortion stance and the immigration stance, and you know it's it's a constant battle the for the platform at every national convention.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. But I mean, like when you when you take out a provision that says abolish the CIA <laughs> and also the, also the FBI, I mean that was there was an abolition clause there too. But the CIA. I mean, this is an organization that has done drug experiments on people, sure. un- unsuspecting MKUltra and hired, secretly hired Nazis, and they've assassinated people. And I mean, you know, the, the FBI and the CIA was infiltrating organizations back in the, in the 60s and the 50s and stuff with the intent to destroy them. And I often thought, well, they don't really need to do that with the Libertarian Party because they've got the conservatives doing it for them. I mean, imagine the one party that stood for the abolition of the CIA guts it and removes that provision. Uh, I mean, the CIA had to be celebrating because now there is no political party that's got a platform that calls for the abolition of this evil agency. That's the type of thing that the the Libertarian Party needs to find its roots, need to find its principles and be calling for the abolition of these evil agencies. No, I absolutely agree. Well,
0: hey – I think this was a great talk, Jacob. I was really happy to have you on. I was excited that you were able to do it on short notice. I didn't, I didn't have anybody booked for that for this one episode. And I was like, you know, Horberger would be perfect to start off my show with. So I really, really appreciate you coming on. Can you tell the folks that are watching uh, where they can find you and, and, and what you'd like them to do to help out uh, FFF?
1: Yeah, they can come to FFF.org. We, we thrive off donations. We would love to have your support. If you like our work, I mean, our mission for 30 years has been to present the principal case for the Free Society. We've got a, a, a daily journal that we send out that, that we strive to make the best daily e- libertarian editorial commentary page on the Internet. It's called FFF Daily. It's free. Our monthly journal, uh, Future of Freedom, is $25. But we rely on donations. We, we'd love to have your support uh, to join our Freedom Club, uh, where you get a video message from me every month. It's dollars $250. Come to our – Richard Ebeling and and I, uh, Richard's an old libertarian friend uh, from Dallas days uh, who teaches at the Citadel, hardcore purist libertarian. He and I do a weekly internet show called The Libertarian Angle. And then we've got this great conference on the Kennedy assassination that I would invite everybody to. So come and visit us at FFF.org. Everything's there. And Josh, I got to tell you, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, I had a great time.
0: Audio uh, audio issues aside and then and then the the, <laughs> the fact that it just decided not to stream, which was really weird, but uh it's a new show, you know, and I and I'm not a computer programmer, so it's it's take it's taken me a lot to get this stuff all kind of set up and um, I wanted to do a really good show for people and, and I didn't wanna just go on there on my webcam and, and say, Hey, you know, how's it going? I wanted it to look nice and, and be a good show that people can appreciate. It's been really hard, but um, we're getting there. I think, I think by the next episode, we'll have most of this stuff figured out. I promise.
1: <laughs> well, you got to expect it, but I, I, I want to thank you. I mean, I, it was always a joy to, to be at these conventions with you, man. And it, it was just, um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we didn't win, but we had a good time.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, Jacob. I look forward to, uh, talking with you again soon.
1: Yeah. Good luck on the show. Thank you so much.
0: All right, guys. Thank you so much for checking out. Episode two of Break the Cycle. Uh, if In case you forgot, I have a, a debate with Larkin Rose coming up on Monday afternoon. That's actually uh, on AnarchoCast. It's going to be for uh, AnarchoPolco, one of two debates there. Uh, don't miss out on the Wednesday's episode three of Couch Dreams. That's a solo. I'm sure we'll have some cool guests pop on quickly and briefly. And then next Friday, it's going to be me and Pete Quinones, which is going to be a really awesome episode. I, I, I'm
1: I just have to explain The lyrics of my last song may seem to contain A violent call to action and the verse in refrain But I just meant it in Minecraft The helicopter part was in reference to GTA
0: V and the things you do So any violence you commit, I am not an excuse Because I just meant it in Minecraft What a chipper is my friend and he's constantly cold Accusations of incitement getting totally old Make your own choices, yeah, you have control Because I just landed in Minecraft Obviously I would never advocate force Unless it's due process and a trial, of course And if you're convicted, we will make you a corpse In Minecraft, just in Minecraft Girl, nothing I mean, you know it No chronic gets too close to COVID Holy shit, I think i will